0: Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, where we explore the unexplained. Our topics include missing persons, UFO and aerial phenomenon, unsolved murders, lost treasures, cryptozoology, urban legends, conspiracies, ancient archaeological anomalies, and much more. If this is your first time listening to us and you like our show, remember to subscribe when you get a chance. Each episode we will dive into a topic or case with an in-depth narrative and include special guest interviews where possible. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 5, The Falcon Lake UFO Incident. On the afternoon of May 20th, 1967, an amateur geologist, Stephen Michalak, stumbled down the highway toward the Falcon Motor Inn in great distress an RCMP Highway Patrol officer slowed down and observed Michalak hunched over and swaying, but apparently trying to flag him down. After hearing Michalak tell a story and warning the officer to stay away from him because he had radiation poisoning, the officer determined he must have been drunk and drove off after Michalak declined help. Michalak staggered into the motel front office, breathing heavily and asking to see a doctor. Having no doctor available, Michalak rested in the hotel room, called his wife, and said there had been an accident, but there was nothing to worry about. The next day, his wife and son met him at the bus terminal in Winnipeg, where he was promptly driven to the hospital. Michalak would be forever perplexed about his physical condition. Something very strange happened to Steve Michalak, in the spring of 1967, just north of Falcon Lake, Manitoba, for which no one is able to properly explain, and today the incident, known as the Falcon Lake incident, is still unsolved. Mishlac had taken the holiday weekend to prospect in the Whiteshell Provincial Park to search for various minerals, including veins of quartz, rumored to be just north of Falcon Lake. Waking early on May 19th, he left his hotel room around 5.30 a.m., and that morning prospected contently until a much-needed lunch break. Shortly after 12 noon, Michelak heard a noise in the distance that sounded much like the grunting of disturbed geese. Alarmed that a predator may be in the vicinity, Michelak stopped his digging and looked around. In the sky, he spotted two cigar-shaped objects, which he describes as being red and brilliant as fire. According to Michelak, he guessed they were coming closer, descending at a 45-degree angle, and he indicated the craft looked more saucer-like than cigar-shaped at this time. One of the objects stopped in the air while the other landed approximately 160 feet away from him. After a brief moment, the one in the air changed its color to gray and flew directly (laughs) west, disappearing into the cloud cover. Michelak's attention was then focused on the landed object, which also turned gray, but with this close proximity, he was able to describe the color and texture more accurately. It appeared to be some sort of incandescent stainless steel. Michalak described a sulfur smell in the area, and low humming noises emanating from the object, which he now believed was some sort of experimental aircraft, most likely veering off course from the United States, and perhaps requiring assistance. Suddenly a door opened and Mishlak saw violet light rays pouring out from the opening. Mishlak still had his special prospecting goggles on and peered into the craft. He heard voices coming from within that sounded to him like someone with an upper-class English accent. He said, Okay, Yankee boys, having trouble? Come out and we'll see what we can do about it. When nothing happened, he thought perhaps this may be a foreign craft so he tried several different languages and then walked closer and peeked inside the craft and saw a brightly lit control room. Suddenly, the door closed and Mishlak stepped back. Observing the craft further, Mishlak describes that it had windows, which he describes as being colorful glass, but it was so very well concealed it was very hard to notice at first. He reached out to touch the craft with his prospecting gloves and his gloves burned. Stepping back in alarm, the craft then turned and rose, and Michelac was struck by some sort of steamy explosion. And from what can only be described as an exhaust vent, a gas like vapor shot in his direction. Immediately, his clothes caught fire, and as Michelac extinguished the flames on his shirt, the craft followed the other into the clouds heading west. Michelac felt pain and sickness, and noticed a smell of something metallic like that of something electronic burning throughout the air. Michelek felt nauseous. His head began to ache. Then it ached more. He broke into a sweat and vomited on the rocks. He covered himself with his light jacket and started through the bush towards town. Something was wrong with him. Dots had formed in his vision, and the headache pulsated while his stomach turned, and his chest burned. While waiting to go to the hospital, he called the Winnipeg Tribune and told a reporter what he had seen and indicated that if the reporter would pick him up and drive him to the hospital, he would dictate the entire story. The reporter declined. Once he finally was hospitalized, doctors noted that he was tired and had burns to his body, which Michelak said was from the exhaust coming out of an airplane. He was released that day from hospital with a sleep aid. The next day, Michelak felt no better, so he visited his family doctor, R.D. Oatway, who indicated he complained of band-like headaches, a hot forehead, blackouts, and feeling nauseous nearly all the time. He noted Michelak appeared rather depressed, dazed, apathetic, but rational and coherent. He noticed a singeing of the hair on the forehead of the hairline, ...and over the lower sternal and upper abdominal region. He also found there were numerous reddish, slightly irregular oval-shaped, slightly raised lesions on his stomach... ...which he determined were caused by thermal heat and were first-degree burns. Word got out of the UFO incident, and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO... ...along with their Canadian counterpart, CAPRO, investigated. The RCMP were also interested in the case as were the Department of National Defense and the Royal Canadian Air Force. In the Royal Canadian Air Force report, they noted Mischelak's association with a man named Gerald Hart, who was known to the RCMP as a subversive individual. So when Mischelak told them Hart had assisted him in his quest for the site of his encounter, officials became suspicious. Furthermore, the actions of civilian UFO investigators were cause for concern in the minds of officials. They raid off one researcher, Barry Thompson. A constant companion of Mr. Michelak, and he appeared to be the spokesman for Mr. Michelak during some of the interviews. Both the investigating officer and Professor Craig of the Condon Committee of the University of Colorado UFO Project, funded by the U.S. Air Force, agreed there appeared to be monetary gain intentions associated with this relationship. However, there was never any monetary gain from the incident. Michalak privately published details of the incident in late 1967. His manuscript, written in Polish, was translated and printed as a 40-page booklet, which quickly sold out. But Michalak saw very little money recovered after the publication's cost, if any at all. Another investigation was initiated by squadron leader Paul Biskie, of the Royal Canadian Air Force, whose own bias skewed his investigation from the start. Biskey was a devout skeptic and told researchers he did not believe in UFOs. His investigation was not to uncover facts, it was merely to prove to himself that UFOs were not real and that Michelac was a drunken liar. Instead of focusing in on witness testimony and evidence, he determined from the get-go that alcohol played a major role in this incident and nothing more. But others were interested in the evidence, and it seems there was a lot to go through. Michalak continued to feel ill, and as a result of prompting by civilian UFO investigators, he went to a radiologist on May 23rd. No evidence of radiation trauma was found, however. On May 30th, Michalak was taken by a UFO investigator to the Whiteshell Nuclear Research Establishment where he was given a whole body count. Again, nothing above normal background readings was found. During the period immediately following his encounter, Michelak had a slight drop in blood lymphocyte count from 25% to 16%. Dr. Horace Dudley, a radiologist and APRO advisor at the University of Southern Mississippi, observed that Michelac's quote, nausea and vomiting followed by diarrhea and loss of weight is a classic picture of severe whole-body radiation with X or gamma rays. He said, I would guess that Mr. Michalak received on the order of 100 to 200 row engines. It is very fortunate that this dose of radiation only lasted a very short time, or he says he would certainly have received a lethal dose. However, the actual tests conducted by his family physician and later at the nuclear research establishment proved no such thing. In August of 1968, Michelek went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The purpose of his visit was to undergo tests in order to determine exactly what was ailing him, since the doctors in Winnipeg appeared to be unhelpful. Michelek paid for the Mayo test entirely on his own, staying for two weeks in a motel near the hospital, walking across each day and entering as an outpatient. He reported that he was given a thorough physical and psychological examination by various doctors and then he was sent home. Waiting several weeks, he awaited his results, but none came, so Michalak complained to the Capro researcher who on his behalf requested the results. The Mayo Clinic sent a letter of denial. The researchers, already frustrated by the official investigations, determined there must be some sort of government cover-up here. They appeared on the CBC, complaining that the actual results were somehow hidden from researchers and the public. But when Michelak was asked to sign a medical records release form, and in 1970, the results came immediately. The report indicated Michelak was found to be in good health, but it had sudden blood pressure losses causing fainting spells. They also noted he had a heart condition, which Michelak was already diagnosed previously. Eventually, his weight would return and his health stabilized. As noted earlier, there were many, many investigations into the Falcon Lake incident. One of the first was done by Michelak and Gerald Hart, you know, the fellow the RCMP were not so fond of. On June 30th, 1967, the pair traveled to the spot to see if they could find physical evidence. When they finally found the spot after six hours of searching, They noted a ring of debris where Michelak said the craft had took off from. They noted nothing else of interest. But when they returned to Winnipeg, they notified the RCAF of their findings. On July 2nd, the RCAF and the RCMP and CAPRO investigators, along with Michelak, made their way to the site to gather samples and photograph the area. The RCMP samples showed significantly high radiation readings. On their recommendation, Consideration was given to cord- cordon off the area due to the possible health hazard. This was noted in an incident report from an inspector with the RCMP Crime Laboratory in Ottawa. The result of tests on some samples sent by the RCMP to the Department of National Health and Welfare, they found, quote, a radiation value of 0.3 microcuries in the soil sample. The radiation is from a radium source and it is a possible serious health Hazard. Samples taken from the site by Michel Eckenhart were eventually tested by the Radiation Protection Division of the Canadian Department of National Health and Welfare. They examined samples of soil burn shirt and steel tape for possible radioactive contamination. The initial gamma analysis showed significant levels of RA-226 or its equivalent. Paul Biskey of the RCAF investigation was still very skeptical noting the apparent lack of cooperation by the principals toward the military and the police, and the exact location was not determined by authorities until after such principals had already visited. Paul Biskey, amongst others, believed the site was seeded with commercially produced radium, either from a radium watch dial or by collecting nuclear waste material from the Manitoba Cancer Institute. After investigating the incident site thoroughly, authorities concluded that one small area was found to be contaminated. This was located across the crown of a rock. There was a smear of contamination about 0.5 inches on each side of the crack. There was also some ground vegetation contaminated just above the smear. The whole contaminated area was no larger than 100 square inches and all water runoff areas were checked for possible contamination, but nothing was found. Furthermore, Michalak himself was unconcerned about handling soil samples he retrieved and which he said was possibly contaminated by radiation. In fact, he used his bare hands on the soil. In a Department of National Defense minute sheet, an official in the office of the Chief of Defense Staff in Ottawa noted, quote, There is some doubt that the soil samples did in fact contain 226, or pure radium. This question of doubt is a scientific evaluation beyond this investigation. The quantity of 226, namely 0.5, is equal to approximately one-third of that associated with an average wristwatch. However, the quantity does not explain how this smear got on the rock or the alleged landing site. This is what is bothering the scientific people. End quote. Samples from the incident site and those taken from Mishlak's residents were diagnosed at the Provincial Environmental Sanitation Laboratory And checked under UV light and the sample taken from the site gave indication they were contaminated with radium luminous paint. The samples from the residents did not. Later investigators visited the home of Barry Thompson, the APRO investigator who had soil and vegetation samples provided to him by Michalak on a secondary visit to the incident site. They noted that one sample proved to be radioactive, and levels up to one MR an hour were detected. The sample was sealed in a plastic bag. A contamination check was made of the area where the samples were using UV light. The area was extremely cluttered with photographic equipment and a great deal of junk. Several areas responded to the UV light, but these did not prove to be areas of contamination, probably photographic emulsion splashes. Thompson appears to be a very sloppy worker. This raises the possibility that emulsion splashes were also the cause of the luminosity found in RCAF samples from the landing site. Between July 1967 and May 1968, Mr. A.J. Epp from the Department of Mines and Natural Resources searched the incident site for possible radioactivity, but he found none. However, on May 19, 1968, Mischelak and a friend found massive pieces of radioactive material, including two W-shaped metal parts measuring 4.5 inches long and several other smaller irregular metal shapes that were said to be found two inches in a rock crevice. Bisky visited the Mischelak home once again and tested the material and found no traces of high radiation. The material, according to the final Condon report, was characteristically like metal found in the vein deposits of that area. Michelac indicated he had other larger pieces, but would not elaborate or show investigators. The Condon report further interprets the specimen as pieces of thin sheet silver that have been twisted, crumpled, partly melted, and dropped into or otherwise placed in contact with nearly pure quartz sand while still hot. They have subsequently been covered with loosely adhering radioactive material, which consisted of crushed pitchblade ore, much altered to uranophane, and containing associated hematite. In view of the thoroughness of earlier searches of the site for radioactive material, it is improbable that the particles discovered a year later would have been missed, and they had been present when the earlier searches were made. However, Capro investigators tested the metal further, and in their tests they noted... They confirmed the presence of radium-226, the same source as was found in the soil specimens. The luminous watch dial paint theory dulled considerably, they said. UFOlogy Research of Manitoba, or UFO ROM, also tested the soil samples from 1977 to 1983 and found naturally occurring uranium activity and suggested the earlier indications of the presence of radium were in error. In 1994, soil samples were once again tested by UFO World, and again nothing of note was found, as well as no metal objects. Many researchers now believe that errors were made or that Michalak and others may have invented parts of the incident. In the report of the United States government-sponsored UFO project, Michalak's experience was described as unknown, meaning there was no explanation. They concluded, quote, if this were physically real, it would show the existence of alien flying vehicles in our environment. The RCAF report labeled the incident unknown as well, even though Bisky believed it was entirely a hoax. But if it were a hoax, it was quite elaborate, and Michalak did not benefit from the incident. There simply was no point in creating... A hoax for so long and spending good money trying to find what ailed him after the incident. Another explanation is that Mishlak did indeed witness something and that others decided to improve the evidence so the case seemed more substantial to further their own agenda. This was, after all, in the height of the extraterrestrial phenomenon explanation of UFOs. They had to be crafts, physical crafts, with aliens from outer space. And with that single ideology, there would need to be physical evidence. And in this case, surprisingly, there was a lot of it. The Condon Report was a prime example of an investigation looking at only one possible explanation and trying to find evidence, however weak it may be, and either tie it to or eliminate it based on their narrow-mindedness. Astronomer J. Allen Hynek wrote that, quote, The Condon Report settled nothing. He called Condon's introduction singularly slanted, and wrote that it avoided mentioning that there was embedded within the bowels of the report a remaining mystery, that the committee had been unable to furnish adequate explanations for more than a quarter of the cases examined. Heine contended that Condon did not understand the nature and scope of the problem. He was studying and objected to the idea that only extraterrestrial life could explain UFO activity. By focusing on this hypothesis, he wrote, the report, quote, did not try to establish whether UFOs really constituted a problem for the scientist, whether physical or social. We know Michelak indicates he saw two crafts, one of which landed and opened a door. Michelak later says it flew off, causing burns to his skin and since then suffered physical ailments. The rest of the evidence presented is circumstantial at best. Researchers indicate Michalak was always sincere and intelligent, and who was annoyed by the notoriety and the constant prodding by media and ufologists and skeptics alike. Michalak died in October of 1999, being the only witness to the incident, having just as many questions as we do, even though so many exhaustive investigations had taken place. To date, the incident at Falcon Lake remains an unsolved mystery. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Mattia Capelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.